passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created. Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome once again to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. I'm your host, John Benzik from VentureSuperfly.com, where we help double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you're in a sea of self-doubt. Today, I'm excited to interview Scott Norton. Scott has been named one of Fast Company Magazine's Most Creative People in Business. He's on Forbes 30 Under 30 list. He is the co-founder of Sir Kensington's, which is a food condiment product line, or as it's known, condiments with character. Items such as mustard, ketchup, mayonnaise, and fabonaise. With a mission to bring integrity and charm to ordinary food, Sir Kensington's condiments have become an integral offering at the nation's leading retailers and restaurants. The company has combined a high-growth startup environment with a values-driven natural food producer, personified by a fabled English gentleman, who is, of course, Sir Kensington. Prior to founding Sir Kensington, Scott has worked at Lehman Brothers in Tokyo, and he co-founded Asia Wheeling, traveling across Asia for 10 months on a folding bicycle. Scott is an Eagle Scout and a graduate of Brown University. To learn more about Scott and Sir Kensington's, visit SirKensington's.com. Hello, Scott. Thanks for taking the time and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Thank you so much, John. It's a privilege to be offered a spot here. It's all my pleasure. I'm really thrilled. Thank you. So, Scott, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. The second part, and we're going to make a little bit of a change here, the second part is called Let's Get Personal, where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. And the final part is called Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. Scott, what do you think? Are you ready for some questions? Ready as ever. Thank you, John. Absolutely. This will be fun. Scott, so tell us the story. How did you originally come up with the idea to start a company like Sir Kensington's? It's a, it's a wonderful question because when I tell people that I make condiments or that I tell people that I'm in the, in the ketchup business, they kind of look at me like I'm a little crazy. Like, what? I didn't even know that was a thing. You know, it's not something that people think of as an opportunity area or really something that people have given much thought to at all. And that, to me, is one of the reasons why it's so exciting. But the story really started about nine years ago when some friends and I were talking, and we had this realization that food in America was changing for the better. Every aisle in the supermarket, for instance, was seeing an upgrade. Food culture was becoming mainstream culture. There was interest in things like organic dairy and grass-fed beef and farm-to-table dining. But as food was moving forward, condiments, and really specifically ketchup, had been left behind. When you looked 
at a bottle of ketchup, you know, most sort of commodity ketchups that you'd see on the shelf, and you flip them over and look at the ingredients, it would really resemble an industrial product more than a food product. And we asked ourselves this question, could we create a ketchup that was in line with the way that we wanted to eat, in line with the way that America increasingly wanted to eat, but also, very importantly, satisfy that specific flavor profile that people look for when they grab a bottle of ketchup. And so we began to experiment. Uh, we began to do rapid prototyping. Uh, we would throw tasting parties after staying up late nights in our uh, off-campus college apartment. And we would cook ketchups that would have different flavors, different ingredients. And these blind tastings, people would fill out scorecards and tell us what they liked, what they didn't. And that gave us an, uh, the opportunity to know what were the best products that we could potentially bring to market. So instead of saying we're the experts and we're going to create one world's best ketchup and put it out there and expect it to sell, we said let's co-create and let's collaborate with who will eventually become our customers. Let's make them part of the building process and really turn that into a learning experience for us. And that ethos of co-creation, collaboration, and prototyping to learn has really, has really become our ethos and educated us and been a tool for us even to this very day as we launch products in thousands of new stores. Back then when you originally started talking about the opportunity, were you food enthusiasts? Yes, great. it's a great question. You know, it's funny because everybody can say, I love food, right? Everybody loves food. Everybody has a relationship with food. That's part of the magic of it. I, I think that, you know, it was very important to my family growing up as it is for most people uh, my mother is uh, is Armenian, and so she would cook Armenian food that I would take to school, and it would be different than what the other kids would have, you know. And at first, people were a little bit, you know, grossed out or skeptical, uh, and then once they tried it and they got to know me, they wanted to, you know, trade to taste some of my hummus. Um, so for me, food was always part of my identity. It was always part of culture. Growing up in Northern California, I was, you know, I had incredible access to fresh food. Um, and excellent multicultural food. And a passion for food was absolutely part of um, Mark Ramadan and my shared passions that we had together. And Mark is my co-founder, um, one of my co-founders in this business. And it was a passion for food that got us interested in this and thinking about this. But there was also another piece of the puzzle which motivated us. And for me, I've always been since a little, since I was a little kid, again, growing up in Northern California, sort of where the, the hippie movement started, I've always been skeptical of big business um, and, and large corporations and seeing them as these, you know, highly competitive, you know, very greed oriented organizations that don't have respect for the environment, that don't have respect for, you know, human culture or labor practices or anything like that, and will do whatever they can, you know, for their own advantage. And... It was when I learned about the concept of social entrepreneurship and I learned about the power of design thinking, learned about the power of innovative business models that actually could be practiced with principles and with values that can ultimately allow business to be a positive force on human society. Where did you come across those ideas? Were you studying business at Brown? I started at Brown studying modern culture and media, which was, you know, I was interested in filmmaking and storytelling 
and the way that you know human beings interpret language and symbols. And I realized that I, that was something wonderful, but I could probably teach myself that you know as a lifelong learning process. And so, uh, you know, given my uh, skepticism of business, I sort of took a know thy enemy approach, and I didn't understand economics. And I knew that I, if I wanted to understand economics, I couldn't do it on my own. Um, and I needed a mentor, teachers, and coaches, and so that's why I enrolled in these classes. And I eventually ended up majoring in economics, um, studying finance, and, and, and really, as part of that, studying entrepreneurship and taking classes in social entrepreneurship. Um, so there were a number of classes that I took to, uh, that with, with case studies about uh, social entrepreneurship, and I got the opportunity to go work with a social entrepreneur in India that changed my life. Wow, that's really exciting and very um, eclectic as well to sort of bring all those pieces together, especially the interest in creativity and filmmaking, storytelling, that sort of thing. Who do you sell to now? What types of channels and retailers? We make a product that's not for everyone. And that's really important because... We knew from the beginning that if we were to put this on the shelf of every single retailer in America, that it would wouldn't succeed in it, it wouldn't succeed in a way that would ultimately be able to deliver value to us and to our customers and all the people involved. And so, what we've done is we've really focused on where are our core consumers and where are our early adopters and our advocates, and how do we grow that base from there. So we started with specialty stores like Dean and Deluca and Williams Sonoma. Um, and now the the majority of our business in retail is in natural focused grocery stores like Whole Foods, um, Sprouts, and Earth Fair, as well as uh, the conventional grocery retailers that are waking up and becoming more and more focused on natural and organic. So Safeway, Kroger, um, Stop and Shop, retailers like this. On the restaurant side, we work with restaurants in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami, uh, San Francisco, places where the kind of better food movement has really begun to permeate and, and show up on menus and in kitchens in uh, restaurants across America. And so those are primarily the channels that we work, work in. How many employees did you have perhaps that first seven, eight months in business? And then how many employees do you have now? First seven or eight months in business, we the only employees we had were ourselves, um, myself and, and Mark, my co-founder. And we worked out of his apartment, actually. Um, it took us a little over a year to hire our first employee. And then we are now 28 people, seven years later. How did you come up with the name and the concept of Sir Kensington? From the beginning, we realized that if we were going to create a disruption and if we were going to win in condiments, then we would have to win the attention war. Ultimately, food and any consumer business is about education and it's about attention and it's about inspiring advocacy in people. And so starting out without a reputation, without a marketing or advertising budget, without anyone knowing who we were as individuals or having any kind of pedigree in the food space, we knew that what was going to have to work really, really hard for us was the product and the package on the shelf. We needed something that when you walked by it, you'd do a double take and immediately say, huh, that looks different and that looks better. And if you can do that kind of communication on the shelf, 
and rely on that as a medium for communicating value, then I think you can win a place in people's shopping carts, in their hearts, in their minds, and on their tables. And so we said, if we're going to make people do a double take and communicate that we're different, instead of plastic, let's choose glass for a package. Instead of a, uh, you know, a squeeze bottle, let's choose a wide mouth jar, more reminiscent of a European preserve. And instead of Heinz's positioning, which is the sort of classic 1950s roadside diner Americana, we said, well, what's a little bit premium? Um, what's a little bit more refined than Americana? Uh, let's be British. So we created this character, Sir Kensington, to speak through. And he's a Victorian naturalist, a philanthropist, a spice trader, a polymath. He's, he's someone that really represents our character. character he really caricatures our culture. Um, and he represents us as a character and represents our team. And the character that he is, is, is related to making condiments with character. And character is, we define as integrity and charm. And those are the same words that we have in our mission. So Sir Kensington is this caricature and this embodiment of integrity and charm that represents the products that we make and the values behind them. I'm curious if you had other sort of fundamental directions from which a character could derive from. So this British guy, did you also consider some some other sources or roots? Yeah, um, you know, when I think that there, there we came to a realization, you, you speak to entrepreneurs in this space all the time. A lot of them are first time entrepreneurs. A lot of first time entrepreneurs are probably listening to this podcast. I mean, it's no secret when you start, you're wrong about everything. It's just a matter of degree of how wrong you are. And when we started, we realized that, okay, this, this positioning was attracting attention and there was something special to it, but also it was a, it was a little pretentious. And ketchup and condiments are this really democratic food. Everybody has a relationship with them and people might not want them to change. People don't necessarily wanna hear that there's high fructose corn syrup in ketchup. Uh, and so we actually went through a process of softening the brand a bit, softening Sir Kensington as a character, which we thought was like kind of over the top ironic and cheeky, but the irony was lost on many people in the aisles of the supermarket. So we had to make it a little more literal, a little more fun, a little more friendly. During that process, I thought to myself, I wonder if we should actually use kind of like almost like an American frontiersman, like sort of a Daniel Boone character or like a Johnny Appleseed, you know, someone who's really part of the American West um, who's part of the agricultural traditions, really salt of the earth. So not so much like a black leather shoe wearing English knight uh, or like a city slicker, but someone that's a little bit more country. And really, you know, we bring, you know, nature and culture together by making food. You know, we go all the way from the fields where these tomatoes are grown uh, and the pastures where the hens that lay our eggs roam all the way through to the fine dining, Michelin-starred restaurants, um, to the shelves of places like Whole Foods and these urban environments that are built to serve, you know, urban citizens. And ultimately, we, we have to have a foot in both worlds. And I think we chose Sir Kensington, who sits a little bit more in the world of where our customers are than in the world of where our producers, suppliers, and, and farmers are. But I but I think he, he has very much an appreciation for the fact that everything we do and everything we source ultimately comes from nature and comes from people that work intimately with nature every day. 
And did you plan to start with ketchup originally? And what did you foresee in those early days as eventually the breadth or the scope of your product line? You know, in those early days, we really thought that we could build a company purely on ketchup um, because it had been so ordinary and overlooked, because it was dominated by, by a monopoly, because it was this fundamental food that's in everyone's refrigerator. But the truth is we learned that retailers, they don't want to really feature, promote, deal with, prioritize a company that just has two, two SKUs, two products. And we learned that it, we had an opportunity to take our same ethos and philosophy and apply it to mayonnaise um, that also had you know, chemicals in it and that had you know, not such a great history with animal welfare uh, when it comes to the eggs that were used in it. And so we saw, again, an opportunity to bring integrity and charm to this ordinary and overlooked food and mayonnaise um, and did the same from a flavor perspective with mustard. And so at the beginning, um, and you know, to the listeners out there, you may be able to, um, as, as Winston Churchill says, plans are useless, but planning is essential. And that's kind of the approach that we had was let's, let's count on just making ketchup and then reassess later on. You don't necessarily need to have the, the specific product vision for your ultimate portfolio from the start. You know, the truth be told, we don't know exactly what we'd be making three years from now, but we know that we'll be making more really interesting things that help us achieve our mission. So Scott, let's get personal on a few topics. It seems that 99 out of 100 just talk about starting a business, but they never start one. It's all show and no go. And starting a business is pretty special and highly unusual. What motivates a person like you, Scott Norton, to stop just talking about launching a business and to go out and actually start a business like Sir Kensington's? Well, John, I love to learn. And I found that the best way to learn is by building things. Because by building things you and creating results, you've got to learn a tremendous amount. And you also have to teach a tremendous amount in the process uh, as, as a leader and as an entrepreneur. And that teaching is also another way to learn. It's, it's a way to inspect ideas, to look at them a second time, communicate them and package them for other people that elevates your understanding of the world. Um, fundamentally, I love to build things because it creates this wonderful virtuous cycle of learning and teaching, and it leaves a mark on the world. Um, and as part of that, you know, that part of that process of learning and teaching, what I hope my work can be, and I'm still, we're, we are still at the very early stages of this, but what I, ho I hope my work can be is something that people can point to as a story and say, that's a new way to do business. That is a, 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 an enlightened way to do business, um, to think about from a values perspective, the way that we make decisions, the principles that we have about the totality of our impact. You know, we believe that a food company has a special responsibility to society because the products that we make, they become part of people's bodies. They give them the energy that they need to live their lives. And that is very special and that is very intimate. We also, in the food that we create, create intimacy and connections between people. People love to gather around food. It brings families closer, it brings friend clo friends closer, it brings communities closer. And you know, there's a, there's a really, special role that food plays in our lives 
and preparing food has, you know, obviously hundreds of thousands of years of human history. Agriculture has 10,000 years in human history. And to be part of that lineage and to accept that responsibility is something that I think that, that we believe should be done on a principled basis and not really just looked at as inputs and outputs and kind of industrial widgets, which I think is you know, how, how a lot of the food system has evolved because of the, the changes that, that World War II um, and food mechanization and food production brought along. Um, I also don't want to seem, you know, holier than thou because ultimately the food we make is priced at a premium. You know, good food, good ingredients, natural ingredients are priced at a premium because of the way that the economic system of our of our food system is is structured and how it's evolved. And, you know, it's, it's, it is very important to me that nutrition is brought to people at all levels of society. And there are big problems to solve here. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get on a soapbox and say that Sir Kensington's with our products is solving all those problems. But what we hope to do is bring attention to the special role that food plays and hopefully spur curiosity and innovation to solve the bigger problems. And do you think, so what it really boils down to you, do you think it's a combination of your desire to learn, number one, number two, make a difference, and number three, driven by creation? Is is there a more central part that drives you? Or do you think it's the combination of the three? I think that there's probably also a component, you know, to get vulnerable for a second. I think there's also probably a component of wanting to create something permanent, wanting to create something relevant in culture that lasts beyond me. You know, as much as I try and surrender the ego, I think that we all, you know, we all as creators are in some way battling this fear of irrelevance, battling a fear of non-existence and a fear of death. And I think that there's a lot of positivity around building a company around a platform for educating people, for learning, for making a difference, for engaging in the creative process and inspiring others. And I think that there's another element which fuels the, the grit and fuels the determination, fuels the tenacity, fuels the persistence, which is an energy that has a little more gravity to it. And I think that there's a fundamental human urge to create things that last beyond our lifetimes. That's probably the most honest answer I've heard in asking this question in terms of what drives people like yourself. And I appreciate you sharing that. Did you grow up in an entrepreneurial environment or an environment where you were exposed to creation applied? I did indeed. And I, I have my amazing parents to thank for that. My, uh, my parents are entrepreneurs. My mother is a, a, a film and television producer and my dad is a film and television director and they work together. Their marriage didn't last, but their business did. Uh, and they had a great partnership in business where my mother was more of the entrepreneurial um, commercial force. And my father was more of the creative force behind communications, direction, and storytelling. And so I think in many ways, I am a combination of my two parents, basically using storytelling, using characters, using visual media to move people and move their minds from point A to point B, and doing that in an economic framework that is commercial uh, and that creates value financially and economically, as my mother was always focused on. So I'm very much, I, I did grow up in an entrepreneurial environment and one that balanced these two pieces. It's interesting, we have a little bit in common. 
just before I got my MBA here in Minnesota, I was going to apply for film school. Mm-hmm. Um, something that really, really drove me more than anything. I grew up always having a video camera in my hand and directing people just for fun. College friends, high school friends. I just naturally did that all the time. And at age 29 or 30, before getting my MBA, I thought, you know, if I were to really have the guts, I would go to film school in LA or New York. But I paused, I took a look, and I said, you know what? I'm not that risk oriented. Instead, I'm going to get my MBA and use that as a tool to express my creativity with those tools. So I saw myself more of an artist with an MBA as opposed to an MBA trying to be creative. That's wonderful. I, I, I share a lot of commonalities with you. Yeah, isn't and so I was very deliberate with that as well. And I thought, you know, I knew the film industry and how challenging that might be, but there's other mediums to express the story. And so I'm glad you're sharing that because I think it's very unique but very thoughtful as well. Did your success surprise you in the success of Sir Kensington's? Yes, absolutely. The this our success surprised me. I mean, I you, we we all grow up with this sort of. I mean, we in in entrepreneurial circles, there's of course this saying that nine out of ten new businesses fail, you know, within the first two years or something like that. You know, it's this off-quoted statistic. And I figured I'd be a statistic. You know, I figured that this would be a wonderful learning experience, and there's no better learning experience than failure. And it took a it took a while for me to recognize that actually we had created something that was of lasting value and had the potential to be of of much more lasting value. Our success did surprise us. And I think that I really have my incredible co-founder partner, Mark, to thank for his ability to look at a situation and sense when something isn't working and make a change. My my approach was a little bit more set it and forget it. Let's, you know, let's see how this works. Um, Let's wait for the idea to catch. Let's see where the unexpected places are that we can get traction. And he's extremely action-oriented. And I think that, like, the the wonderful part about it was, you know, going from, you know, is this going to be successful or not, and is the success surprising to us, to we're just going to choose not to quit. We're just going to choose not to give up. We're going to choose to make this successful by setting really ambitious goals and by telling a really compelling story that people can climb on board to. What has been your biggest joy or what have you been most proud of along your entrepreneurial journey? The two, the two biggest joys that, that, I, that I have really, the first is our team. Seeing our, our team grow and learn and allowing and enabling this business to be a place where other human beings can develop a passion, have an impact, um, develop their skills and abilities, see the world in new ways, and learn to lead themselves, that is incredibly rewarding um, to create a platform for that and to see what people are capable of when you give them that autonomy, that independence. And then the second thing, second really rewarding piece of this is seeing strangers interact and enjoy the products that we make. You know, ultimately, the entire value chain that we've created from the tomatoes to the table, so to speak, with our investors, with our employees, it's all designed. It's to serve the customer, to serve the person that's actually eating the products. So when we see them enjoying them and seeing value in these, it it really justifies the entire system and what everyone is working for. 
And that joy is, is something that is wonderful for me to witness. What has been your biggest frustration in starting a business? Ooh, this is this is a great one. I think that probably the biggest frustration is you think that it's a straight line from point A to point B, but man, it is not a straight line. And even the simplest little things, whether it be finding a warehouse or setting up a website or you know getting into a retailer, there are monkey wrenches thrown in on an hourly basis to basically anything that you want to get done. You know, you are fighting chaos. And not only are you fighting chaos, but you're fighting chaos with no reputation and very little, very little goodwill in some cases because you're often just asking favors from people that you've never met before. And that, I think, is, is one of the frustrating parts of the business is that it always takes longer than you think and it's always more complicated than you think to get anything done. I mean, I just, I can't, I just can't even describe how hard it is to, to achieve something simple like getting a product on the shelves of retailers. Like they've made, they've made the system so incredibly complex and extractive. And I think the system is due for a change. But for now, uh, we live in, in a very complex, uh, integrated system with a lot of challenges. Scott, many entrepreneurs, even seasoned ones, experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, if any? And what have you done to deal with it? I face a tremendous amount of self-doubt. I really always have, and I currently do. And it is something you need to deal with because we, in our society, we give ourselves so much negative self-talk. We have so much self-doubt, but everyone around us believes in us. We, we are so hard on ourselves and so doubtful about our own abilities. Meanwhile, everybody around you wants you to succeed. Everybody around you believes in you. And it's, it, it, it's almost backwards in some ways. And I think that creative confidence is this amazing precursor and predecessor to success. When I see people with creative confidence that are able to tame the dragon of negative self-talk and self-doubt, they are able to inspire other people more effectively. They're, be able, they're able to create cooperation uh, and co-creation with customers. Uh, they're able to the lead teams. Um, they're, they're able to communicate and execute ideas. That is, that is really the beast you need to tame. And for me, uh, I would say that my leadership coach, uh, Yogi, that I worked with, and also a daily meditation practice, all of those things help me see reality as they truly are and give me strategies to, to quell and to observe the negative self-talk rather than being a victim of negative self-talk. Scott, you've clearly sort of outlined how difficult it is to start a business. How has starting your own business changed you as a person, if at all? Yeah, that's a really big question. Let me think about that. I think starting a business has helped me understand the, the power of taking responsibility and of stepping into a position of authorship. That if you see, the, if you see part of the world as, as fundamentally broken and you go out to fix it and you go out to fix a part of it, that and you see progress and you make an impact, I think that's an incredible feeling. And it also makes you realize how much more of an impact that you can have in areas that need more help and that need work. And all of a sudden, you recognize that if you take responsibility for something, you take authorship for something, uh, if you sit down and focus on it, you can have a positive impact. And I think that it, it, it makes you more of a responsible, considerate person. It makes you recognize that 
nothing happens on its own. It always happens with the dedication and coordination of individuals and teams. Um, and, it, and, and it helps you recognize sort of the power of, of hard work. And I also, for me, it has awoken me to an incredible sense of gratitude that I have because we are extremely lucky. We are, we are extremely lucky to have been fortunate to see success in our business. We've been extremely lucky to have the opportunities that we have been afforded. We've been extremely lucky to have incredible team members join us. And I think that it's given me a sense of gratitude that has really changed my outlook on life. What have you learned most about yourself in starting a business? I think uh, in starting this business, I've learned a lot about myself. A lot of the things that I sort of believed when I was really wet behind the ears, they have born to be true. I've learned that the journey is the reward. And I, I feel like I always knew this, but it was really confirmed that what feels like friction is actually polish and that challenges as they arise are always these opportunities to develop a new mastery. They're uh, always an opportunity to learn. So I think that that outlook of seeing challenges as opportunities, not as necessarily setbacks, that's a fundamental part of optimism. And I think that I've, you know, my optimistic nature has been confirmed and really borne out. And also starting this business has, has made me realize that the way that I understand it now and the perspective that I have on my life is that I feel like I have a purpose. And my, my purpose in society is to help people understand that business can be used as a force of good. And my purpose is to utilize my curiosity, my ability and, and interest in learning about the world, make sense of it, and then articulate it and teach it to other people. And I think that business has been an incredible platform to do that. You know, opportunities like this to speak to your audience, any public speaking where I can kind of take this different point of view um, which may not show up in different textbooks or in different case studies, and share my share my view of the world, um, that's part of the purpose and the impact that I want to have. So it's definitely focused me in that regard. Who has been most influential to you in your life, either professionally or personally? I wish I could say that I had a single mentor. You know, I've always kind of been envious of people that, that have like a true mentor. And it's been so many people that have had an incredible effect on us. I mean, the board that we have at Sir Kensington's, they've been incredible mentors to us, coaches for us. As I mentioned before, my leadership coach, Charlie Jones, he's been a tremendous force for helping me understand and navigate the world. Of course, you know, my mother and father are absolutely at the top of that list. And actually, you know, I, my, my wife. My wife, Cara, is such an incredible teacher that reminds me every day what is important. The importance of presence, the importance of family, uh, the importance of not wasting in every sense of the world, in every sense of the word, and the importance of going outside your comfort zone uh, and trying new things. I think that, that you know, my wife has been an incredible sounding board, support, and force of good in my life. That's terrific. So here we are, Scott, in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Scott, did you have to raise capital for Sir Kensington's, and how did you do that? We did have to raise capital for Sir Kensington's, from you know funding our first initial order to later stages of growth. We began, as they say, going to the three F's, friends, family, and fools. 
And we did that really through a seed round or an angel round, actually a couple of those. And we we used our networks, our professional networks, and we met people with any kind of business advice, strategic advice in the space that could provide us some capital and, and provide us some perspective. And then as we grew, um, as our revenues grew and as our need for capital grew, we, we worked with a, an institution, which is uh, a really a, a form of, of family office by some definitions called Verlinvest. And we worked with this institution that is structured kind of organizationally like a private equity firm and has the expertise of a private equity firm uh, and are truly polished professional investors, though have much longer term time horizon and have a really specific focus on the better food and beverage space globally. And so working with them was tremendous, obviously, for the growth of our business, but the amount of discipline that they brought to the way that we govern the business, um, the way that we plan for the business, um, our budgeting, our reporting was a form of really fantastic boot camp that helped us understand the tools that we can put in place that were, again, challenging but ultimately made us much sharper at understanding how to create results. Was that your most valuable lesson in raising capital, or was there another one key lesson that you could share with the audience? Okay, here's here's the lesson in raising capital. The world is awash in capital. Capital is fungible, capital is everywhere, and people will fund your business. What you have to be able to do is have the discipline to make sure that your business model does not rely on outside capital because otherwise if your business model and the the structure of your business the structure of your finances are to to run at a loss which capital providers are commonly see and are often happy to fund you relinquish your independence and you are all of a sudden at the mercy of the people that are the next people to provide you capital when you have a fundamentally profitable business um, or a business that you can you know, easily make profitable or at least have a very uh, direct line of sight to profitability, then you have more freedom, more flexibility, and time can be on your side. You know, we're at a very interesting time where equities you know, have, not been, have only been more expensive now in April of 2017 than the 20, 1929 right before the Great Depression and in 1999 right before the Web 1.0 stock market crash. Capital is cheap now. Capital is available now, but there is no telling what the economic cycle is going to, how that economic cycle is going to bear out in the next couple of years, um, or even in the long term. So I think making sure that you don't rely on outside capital for your fundamental business model and the way that you deliver value to customers to succeed uh, is probably the, the, the is the best advice that I can hope to give. And it, sound, it sounds so obvious, right? It's like such an obvious thing. But in, tw- in 2017, you have to tell people, we all, we all have to tell ourselves that cash is king. And if you are profitable, you can write your own rules. And if you're not, you're at the whim of other people. That's for sure. Let's switch gears and talk about finding a manufacturer or producing your product. Did you originally produce your product by yourself? And are you currently doing that? Or did you outsource that to another company? Fairly early on in the process, very early on in the process, we realized that we should focus on or our core competencies, which did not include manufacturing. So we we began co-manufacturing, uh, outsourcing our production 
And we did that by going to trade shows, like the fancy food show, looking at lists of co-packers, and really going through the process and the diligence of understanding whose uh, abilities suited our needs, um, geographically, economically, from a quality perspective, food safety and quality assurance, you know, the list goes on. So it was really about um, using our networks and using these trade associations to target and identify co-packers. What was the number one lesson you learned in hiring and working with a co-packer? The number one lesson was, you know, they can read, but they can't mind read. So you really have to define what success looks like specifically in terms of product definition, what the range of products that you'll accept are, the range of products that you will not accept. You've got to define everything like, you know, here is an image of what a correct label placement looks like. Here's what's in spec and here's what's out of spec. You know, really specifically defining what your vision is and defining um, what they need to be able to deliver to hit that. That, that I think, was really important lesson for us. In completing this podcast interview, Scott, I really appreciate your time, but I have two more questions, and, and one is related to raising awareness and demand for your product. I've always said it's easier to get your product on the shelf than off the shelf. And most startups have such small marketing budgets, that's a real challenge for them. So I think I read before this interview that in your first year, you sold 10,000 units of your product. And I'm thinking, how on earth did you guys do that? If that's true, in those early days, how did you get consumers to buy your product at that level? Well, in those early days, it was really, again, about creating something that was compelling on shelf that made people do a double take and immediately communicated that this was better, that this was interesting, and that this was different. And so uh, at that point, actually, it really came, came down to what retailers could we get into that were a perfect fit for the product that the customer was already shopping in and already um, aware of. And so it was the, you know, William Sonoma and Dean and DeLuca and the, you know, independent cheese shops, um, and, and to some degree, a little bit later on, Whole Foods, that were where this core consumer was, that was predisposed to being attracted to the product and excited by the product because of its physicality. We say that people eat with their eyes before they taste with their tongues. It's the way the product looks that sells it the first time, and it's the way that the product tastes that sells it the second time, the third time, the fourth time, and so on. Um, so making sure that we are visually outstanding and we were in the right context of the store, that is what en enabled us to start fast out of the gate. Terrific. And finally, Scott, did I miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? My only closing piece of advice is really to spend this time thinking about your purpose, your purpose as an individual, your purpose as an entrepreneur and as a business leader, and ask this question, what is the change that I wanna make? And when you begin to get clarity there and talk about that with other people, then you know, ask the question about how you can inspire the team around you that is building this with you to ask that same question and excite them and inspire them around that same sense of purpose that you've done so much thinking about. People have already signed on to help you. They already want you to succeed. Um, in many cases, they, they are maybe already working for you as employees. And I think that what you can do for them that's invaluable that maybe they've never gotten before, or you've never gotten before, 
is truly a sense of, of philosophical purpose that um, links the daily work that we all do, um, which might be something as simple as filling out a form in Excel or sending out a, a freight shipment, link that back to the impact that you're going to have and kind of the greater contextual purpose in society. That gives people a real sense of meaning that will fuel them. Very wise and valuable advice. We'll close with that, Scott. You've been a fantastic guest, offering some great stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success, for your entrepreneurial courage, and thanks for sharing your experiences with us today. Well, thank you so much, John. As I said, I'm, I'm humbled to be featured on the podcast, and I, I aspire to the articulation and clarity at which you communicate verbally. You've got, truly got a great voice for radio. Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks and have a great day. Wonderful. See you soon. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.